Every day of the week, we are constantly tempted to give ourselves to things that we think will enable us to live our best life. Whether it's our jobs or whatever activities we are doing, we think if we just do those, we'll get our best life. And we gather for worship. We are remembering and we are being reminded and we are trying to take in more deeply that we are to give ourselves to God. That's why when we come here, we are giving of our time. We are giving God even our weaknesses in confessing. We are giving God of our resources. We are giving God our minds. We are giving God our hearts. We are learning to give him everything. And when we do that, we are understanding how we can relate to everything that goes on during the week. Because we have given ourselves to him. Listen to this. O God, you are our God. Earnestly, we will seek you. Our soul thirsts for you. Our flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So we have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, our lips will praise you. Our soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And our mouths will praise you with joyful lips. Our souls cling to you. Your right hand lifts us up. Let's respond to this as we sing about the power of God. To look with you this morning in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. So if you have a copy of God's Word, please turn there. We're continuing to go through the Sermon on the Mount, and this morning we look at the particular section in Jesus' message where he talks about prayer. So I want to read to you verses 5 through 16. So remember, this is the Word of God. This comes from the very heart of of our Savior Jesus. Listen to this. Matthew 6, 5 through 16. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have, their re- they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Sound like a familiar passage? If you've been at least remotely connected to anything Christian, you've probably heard that prayer before. Well, let's pray and let's ask God to help us understand it. Father, we thank you that we can pray to you and we can pray in confidence that you will hear us. We thank you that you have given us this word today so that we might understand your mind and your heart. 
We thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you are this all-powerful, divine team that is at work in the world and in our lives. So we pray that you, and we ask that you would have your way with us, that you would deal with our issues, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, that in all things you would convince us of the Savior and the good news of Jesus and what he has done. So God, we pray seeking your glory. We pray through the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You know, whenever you read a passage on prayer, it seems like we immediately hear this and think, man, my prayer life isn't what it should be. You hear these words and hear these words and you've heard them over and over and over and perhaps you think that way. I don't know of a single person in my life, I don't know that I've ever known anyone who has thought to themselves, my prayer life is amazing. That I, I am the greatest prayer ever. Like I can't wait to pray in public and I just, I really have problems stopping praying. I don't think I've ever met anyone like that. And I want you to know, when you read this on prayer, Jesus is not, you know, pulling a pin out and launching a shame grenade on us. He doesn't write these words to make us feel more and more guilty for our already willingness to admit that our prayer lives aren't what they should be. Because most of us would love a deeper, more vibrant prayer life, I think. Most of us would want to know more and more about prayer and the great mystery of prayer and on and on. So no, when Jesus writes these words, know this, he's not dropping a shame grenade on any of us, okay? Know this as well. Perhaps many of you have grown up in the church in which Christianity was presented to you as a list of rules and no relationship. And perhaps you're at the point in your life in which you realize that Christianity really isn't rules. And perhaps you've rejected that and realized that Christianity really isn't about rules. But you might be wondering, how in the world do I connect with God? If you've grown up in that and you realize that rules aren't the thing I know that I'm supposed to connect with God, you might be wondering, but how do I do that? I know God is real, but how can I connect with him? How can I experience him? How can I know more deeply that he's real? Well, be encouraged. Jesus gives us this about prayer to help us to know how to connect with God to help us to know more deeply that God is real and that we can know him. Or maybe your experience with this, the Lord's Prayer, is like like this. You know, football season is basically kicking off, right? I know the college season, the games haven't started yet, but practice is going on, some of the NFL preseason stuff is going on. And if you're like me, you've probably observed through athletic events One second when the coach is dog cussing his players and when everybody's fighting and the very next moment, coach says, okay, everybody kneel. And then in unison, our father, who art in heaven, hallowed be our name. You ever experienced that? I've seen that over and over. Matter of fact, even when I was in high school, we were 12 and one in our 
senior basketball year, whatever, we lost five straight games, and coach came in the locker room and he said, you know what, we've got to do something different. So we started saying the Lord's Prayer before and after every game. In other words, we often think, I'll say it this way, we have really no idea what this is talking about. Because the way that it has been presented is oftentimes it's a ritual. It's just something you say. In one minute, you could be cursing your head off, and the next moment you could be, but our Father, who art in heaven. And the juxtaposition of that just isn't right. You know what I mean? Jesus wants us to really think about this prayer because we perhaps have forgotten or don't know what it's actually about. So this morning I'm going to give you the one, two, fours of prayer. Not because I can't count, because I couldn't get the fourth one down to three. So the one, two, fours of prayer. So the first thing is that there's one single point that I want you to get. There's one main point to this prayer. This is the point. Jesus is teaching us how to give ourselves to God. That's what he's doing through this. Jesus is teaching us how to give ourselves to God. That's what he's doing with the prayer. Got that? That's all from our first point. Man, we are just mowing through this. Second point. There are two no-no's. If you look at verses 5 through 8, you'll see that Jesus identifies for us two no-no's of prayer. The first thing Jesus does when he starts talking about prayers, he identifies the hypocrite. He says, when you pray, don't pray like the hypocrites. Do you see that in verse 5 and following? Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't pray like them. They're the, they're the folks that love to pray in the synagogue. They're the people that love to play, pray on the street corners, meaning the public place. They love to be out in public so that everyone can see them praying. They love it. They love it. Jesus, remember, is talking about people that do Christian things. He's talking about people that do Christian things like last week. They give. They do Christian things like pray. They do things like working for the kingdom. Remember, the whole, po- the whole sermon that Jesus gives is all leading up to the last few verses of chapter 7. It was Jesus is explaining that he's actually after the heart. Remember that? And he's working out what it means to be a counterfeit. He's explaining to us that there are things that look real. They look like the real thing, but yet they are absolutely not real at all. They look like Christian. They look what a, like what a Christian should be, but they're not. They look like what a follower of Christ would do, but they don't. But they're not. Fundamentally, they're not. This is why the scary thing happens at the end of chapter 7. Jesus said, there will even be those that come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do all these things? Remember that? Jesus is leading up to that. He's saying there are people who will be passionate, Lord, Lord. He's saying there are people that will be involved in the work of the kingdom. Didn't we do these things in your name? And Jesus yet will say, depart from me, I never knew you. 
that's kind of frightening in a way, isn't it? You see, Jesus is giving another example. He's saying there are people that will do Christian things, but yet they are counterfeit. Counterfeit. And it's really hard to identify because things look so similar to the real thing. See, what Jesus is saying is that there are people who will do things that might even be good things like giving, like serving, like praying. There are people who will do good things, but their lives are not based on Jesus. Their lives are not based and built on him. What it means is that people are doing things, giving, praying, serving, just for themselves. It means at rock bottom, whatever they're doing is so other people can see them and reward them and praise them and say, look at how great they are. Jesus is saying there are people who just pray because they want other people to recognize that they're praying. Jesus is saying people will give and people will pray just so that other people will look at you and say, wow, that's a great person. Oh my, they can really pray. Jesus is saying that's a no-no. Don't pray that way. Don't pray so that people can see you and praise you and reward you. Don't want to be in public just so that people can say, wow, look at this. Look at these people. Look at this person. Maybe a good parallel for this is when our president, oftentimes after he gives speeches, will say things like this, and may God bless America. There's no prayer life going on. This just makes people feel good. He just says that because that's something that you're supposed to say. There's no fellowship with God going on there at all. He's just doing something that is expected, doing something that is based on tradition, something that people want to hear so that then his audience will praise him, right? Jesus is saying that's a no-no. We shouldn't do that. And then he says in verse 7 and 8, we shouldn't even pray like the Gentiles. And really what God is talking about there is those that we would consider like people that are secular, People that don't believe in God, people that are outside of God's people, you do realize that ultimately that was us, that we were brought in, right? Jesus is actually talking about our lineage, our heritage, people that were not part of his chosen people. Isn't it fascinating to also think about that Jesus is basically saying, whether you're religious or whether you're categorized as outside of God's people, that everybody prays? I know we have to do some work to think about, well, what is our actual prayer, right? What is it that we call out to if it's not God? But Jesus' assumption is that everyone prays. Everyone gets into the worst possible position and knows at some level in their life they have to cry out something else. But here what Jesus is saying is the no-no is this. Actually, the word is really hard to translate. I think it's the only place that's used in all the Bible and all of ancient literature as far as I could figure out. And what Jesus is saying is that another no-no of prayer 
is when you heap up words and you say those words with tremendous intensity and not only is there great intensity in the words that you're saying, but there is just continual repetition such that by being intense, by being really serious, and by saying the same things over and over and over, then God will hear us. Jesus is saying, don't pray like that. In my experience, I've seen that in the church, that type of prayer. Have you? Where it's just heaping up the same words with hopefully better and stronger emotion, claiming more and more, knowing then thinking that my intensity is what is going to get this prayer heard. Jesus is saying, that's a no-no. That's not how we should pray. You realize that both of these, both of these no-nos are absolutely technique-driven. They're technique-driven. You see, those who pray so that others will recognize them, they're praying because they want people's approval. Those that are repeating words with great intensity and repeating the same things over and over and over, they're doing that because they want to get something from God. Jesus is saying, that's not the way to pray. We should never pray because we want other people's approval, because it'll never be enough. We should never pray hoping that the right people will think well of me, and therefore I will feel good about myself, and I'll be a better person. Nor should we ever think that prayer is the way that we use God to get what I think that I want. Prayer is not the way that we use God to make our goals happen. God is not the way to make our dreams come true. Whether it's approval of others or getting enough stuff from God, it will never satisfy our soul. We can't ever have enough approval from anybody else or get enough things from God that our soul will be satisfied. Jesus is basically saying, if that's what you think prayer is, then you might not know me. He's saying, if you think that prayer is just a technique, that's the way you use it, you might not even know me. You might not know Jesus. And when you read this Sermon on the Mount, he is straightforward, isn't he? Jesus doesn't mince any words. He wants us to take this in and think about our lives. Well, then he says this at the end of verse 8. Pray then like this. Here are four keys to prayer. The first thing is this. Fill yourself with who God is. You want to know what prayer really is? You know what it means to you want to know what it means to give yourself to God? Fill yourself with who God is. When you pray, fill yourself with God. This is what Jesus says. He is claiming in this prayer that God is both heavenly, our Father in heaven, and he is transcendent and he is near. He is our Father. Jesus is saying, fill yourself with the ideas that God is so far beyond us 
Remind yourself that his ways are not your ways. Remind yourself that his thoughts are not always our thoughts. Remind yourself that his ways and his thoughts are so far beyond us. When we pray, we should remember that God is so big and so powerful. And we should also remember that he's near. That's why Jesus says we can call him Father because he's close to us. Even though he is unbelievably powerful, even though he is transcendent, yet he is our Father. He's close. And we're supposed to hold those things in tension to where we understand, oh yes, God is so near to me. I can say anything I want to him. Anything. I can express my fear. I can express my anger. I can express the fact that I don't know what's going on. I can tell him anything because he's close. And at the same time, I do that because I remember how amazingly powerful and beyond me he is. Because his thoughts aren't always mine. Jesus says, fill your mind with God. And it's not just that he emphasized the fact that God is beyond us and he's near us. Jesus actually says, look at this too. He's holy. Hallowed be your name. He's saying God is holy. And he also is king. He has a kingdom. So when you pray, when I pray, Fill yourself with who God is. He's transcendent, and yet he's near. He's holy, which means he is pure. It means that all of his characteristics all come together into one whole being. Everything fits with him. He is holy, pure, righteous, and he has all power and authority. He's actually doing something in the world. He has a kingdom, meaning He's at work. He's building his kingdom in the world. He has something he's doing in the world. He is changing people's lives. He is establishing his glory. He is spreading his glory. Jesus says, fill yourself with who God is. Here's the second thing. When you read through this prayer, what you notice is that surrender comes before the request. Look at what he says. After he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he says, give us. Notice that? So filling ourselves with who God is and who we know him to be, even if that is so far beyond us. And then we always have to remember, we have to surrender before we request. So we should come with a posture of surrendering to God. You see, we look out and we look at the circumstances of our lives and the things that are going on and around us and the world, close, far away. We see everything through like a little keyhole. We just see a little glimpse. Now, what we see is true. What we see is real. But we don't see the whole thing. We don't see the whole picture. We just get a little glimpse and when we submit ourselves to God and surrender ourselves to God, we are acknowledging that God knows it all, that he sees it all. I remember when I was young, I used to often ask my mom and dad for things. And you know what they told me? Now, in my remembrance, they always told me no more than they told me yes. And I'm sure that's not true. 
But do you know why so many times parents tell their children no? Hopefully you do tell your children no every now and then. You tell them no oftentimes because you see the bigger picture than what they see. You recognize that your children, that I as a child, didn't, even, didn't always understand what was actually going on, but my parents did, and so they told me no because they could see things beyond what I could see. And it's hard to surrender to someone. It's hard to submit, isn't it? Jesus is saying, submit ourselves to God. Surrender our wills to God. And you know what it also means? When he talks about surrendering to God, saying, your will be done, what that means is that God can't be a big slot machine in the sky. When we say your will must be done, it means that God isn't this ultimate app store where we can get everything that we want and have all the entertainment that we need to make everything faster and easier. He's not that. It means that he's actually personal. He's something that we have to surrender to. He's someone we have to surrender to. He is real. He is personal. And he is working out his will in the world. And when we pray, we are admitting that and acknowledging that. We're submitting to him. Oftentimes, what I want is this. Lord, my will be done. In Greenville, as it is at 302 Pinewood Road. But you know what? That doesn't even work, does it? Because the actual will for my house is not me, is it? If I didn't listen to Jenny, didn't think about what she said, didn't hear her perspective, if we didn't make decisions together, I wouldn't be following God's will in my home, would I? We want our will to be done. I want my will to be done in Greenville as it is at 12.02 at Five Guys when I'm in line about to order. That's what I really need to say. In those moments in which I am making the decision about what I want, when I say your will be done, what we're saying is we're surrendering to what you want, even if we can't always know it or see it or understand it. You see, we have to lay down to the fact that we aren't God, and we have to stop trying to be God. And that means this, and maybe this sounds really off the wall, maybe this sounds more like a sidebar, but if you ever have ever talked to people who have said, you know what, prayer just didn't work for me. You ever run into people like that? I hope you will. I hope you do. I hope you have. I hope you've run into people who have said, you know, I've tried Christianity, it just didn't work for me. Or I hope I've tried prayer specifically, and it just didn't work for me. Oftentimes I have realized, when I get to talk with people that have that disposition, that they didn't immediately think about filling themselves and filling their minds and their hearts with who God is. They just wanted to use prayer as a technique to get what they wanted, to get out from under something. Because if we really are praying to God, we are remembering that we're the creature. And he's this all-powerful creator. So if you've ever tried prayer and it hasn't worked, 
I'm just, I'm just suggesting that maybe you've thought about prayer in the wrong way. Maybe your life has illustrated exactly what Jesus has said in verses 5 through 8. That you can't use prayer as a slot machine. You can't think that this is just God and I just, this is how I get him and I get him to do what I want. And maybe we haven't really thought deeply about what it means to give ourselves to God in prayer and to surrender to him. Because before, you th- before we think about asking God something, we should probably acknowledge, oh, it's his kingdom, not mine. Because how many times do our requests flow right out of trying to build our kingdom? When we acknowledge that God has a kingdom, it means that our requests will then make sense. And we might hold on to those requests loosely. And we might wait for God to answer those prayers in whatever way he sees fit. Here's the third thing. Not only should we fill our minds with who God is, not only should we remember that submission or surrendering comes before requests, but here's the other. Make the ask. One of the things that God says in his word is oftentimes we don't have because we don't ask. Make the ask. Ask God. Ask him what you need. Ask him to teach you what you need. Make the ask. Here Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. What he's saying is, God, will you give us each day what we need? One guy I read said this. He said the reason why Jesus says those words, give us this day our daily bread, is because the assumption is that we are constantly giving away. That every day we're giving of ourselves and everything that we're doing. And therefore, that increases our dependence on God because then we need him to actually give us each day what we need because the previous day we were busy receiving from God and giving away whatever he has given us. Isn't that, that was a pretty cool thought to think about. We are saying, God, give us everything that we need. Ask. Make the ask. Ask God. Ask him for whatever is upon your heart. 4, verses 12 through 15, Jesus is laying out for us. Here's the final key to prayer. What God is ultimately doing in our lives is that he is equipping us to live in a fallen world. We notice how much is wrapped up in sin and temptation and forgiveness and all that in verses 12 through 15. Jesus is saying, if you want to live in the world, if you want to thrive in the world, you need to be constantly equipped to live in a broken world. Because sin is everywhere. It means that we need to have a posture of forgiveness. It means that as we are forgiving others, God is continuing to forgive us. It means that as we have been forgiven by God, we ought to give that forgiveness to others. It means that if we have been forgiven by God, we should not withhold forgiveness from others. Again, we are giving out what God has already given and continuing to give us. And when we endure trials and challenges and temptations, we need God to give us strength to see those temptations. We need God to give us strength to fight those temptations. And we need God to give us strength to get us out when we give in to temptations. See, what he's saying is God has to constantly equip us to live in a fallen world where there's sin, 
where there's need for forgiveness, where we are needing to be forgiven every day. It's fascinating to me to think about when so many people are trying to tell us how to avoid trials and how to avoid challenges and oftentimes saying this is how you can use God in order to avoid these things. Here is Jesus. Here's Jesus telling us point blank that we should expect trials and challenges and the reality that we need forgiveness and need to give forgiveness. Jesus just says, don't think, it's not even, you can't even avoid this. This is going to happen. He's even saying that we can thrive living in a fallen world because we have him and because we have the power of forgiveness and because we have the power of his grace working in us. This is really what happens as we live life. If you can, just step back with me for a moment. And if, if you will, think about life. Think about your circumstances. Think about your growing up. Thinking about, think about your jobs. Think about what you're doing. Think about your plans for a moment, if you will. This is what happens in life. Things are going to happen that are going to be beyond your control. Things are going to happen that are beyond our ability to predict. Things are going to happen that are unexpected. Deaths, tragedies. There are going to be shocking things that have happened, that, that happened in your life. Maybe they have happened or they will happen or maybe you're going through them right now. And we can try to numb them. You can try to ignore them. You can try to avoid them. You can be angry with God. You can get super shallow in your life and never really open up to anybody because of those things that have gone on in your life. You can be broken because of what has happened in your life. Or to use a phrase of a recent book, you can be broken open in which you're thinking about what is actually going on. Because through all those things that you have experienced and all the things that you will experience, our hearts are being exposed. And we're beginning to come to grips with what actually is going on in life and what has happened in our lives. And we have the opportunity to admit the mess and the darkness that is inside and outside. What's going on internally in our lives and what happens outside of us. And we will have all kinds of opportunities to see our own pride, to see our own jealousy, bitterness, our self-reliance, and what Jesus is saying is put our whole lives through the crucible of God's love, through the lens of God's being, the reality that God is our Father, through the lens of all that he is for us. In order to give ourselves to God, we've got to lose our lives to find it. In order to give ourselves to God, we've got to realize the end of all that we wanted and hoped and dreamed, what we thought, to find what God wants and what he says. Reading through this passage and thinking about it this week has helped me make a deeper connection to one of my favorite stories in the Bible than I ever made before. And I can't tell you all the ins and outs of this now, but if you want to know more, I'd be happy to tell you more details of what I can share with you now. 
But I want you to know that prayer is wrestling with God. One of my favorite stories is the story of Jacob in Genesis 32. You can go back and read about it if you want, but here's a basic summary. Jacob was a horrible person. He was, he was a liar. He was a thief. He, he, he was so conniving. He was dishonest with virtually everyone in his life. And he was so conniving and such a liar that that basically is how people related to him. They tried to get things from him by lying to him and cheating him. It was like his whole life, he knew nothing but lying and cheating. And there's this one story in which he is traveling because his brother wants to kill him. And he's traveling with his family, and he sets his family on one side of the river, and he goes back to the other to be all alone. And perhaps I'm reading between the lines here, but I think it's true. Perhaps for the first time in his life, he decided that he was going to pray. And it was late at night, and something happened that night when he was all alone. God came to meet him. And it says that they wrestled back and forth. And when Jacob was wrestling with God, it seems like Jacob thought he had the upper hand. Because here he is wrestling with God, and he's saying things like, I won't let you go until you bless me. And then sometime late and deep into the night, we actually realize that the person Jacob is wrestling isn't even trying. And we know that because he reaches out and barely touches Jacob, touches him in his leg, touches him on his hip, and Jacob is permanently injured. Which seems to me to indicate that that guy wasn't even trying. He was just holding Jacob. And you know what Jacob was doing? He was trying to pin God down. Oh, I am going to master you, God. I'm going to get exactly what I want from you. I'm going to pin you down and hold you down until you have to submit to me. And God says, touch. And Jacob caves. Now, what's so fascinating about this, I've said that a lot today, I'm sorry, is that one of the prophets Actually, if you look at the literal rendering of it, one of the prophets refers to that encounter that Jacob had with God as supplication or prayer. Jacob thought he could pin God down through prayer. He thought he could wrestle God into submission. He was saying over and over, God, I won't, I won't let you go till you bless me. And then at the, end of the, at the end of the story, you know what Jacob says? I have seen God and I'm not dead. Something had changed about him. He was wrestling God, trying to get God to do what he wanted, lie his way into everything he wanted. And then he realized, oh, I can't use God to get what I want. Oh, I have to give up all that I am to God. Oh, he gave me a new name, which means he changed who I am. Prayer is like that. Oftentimes we come to it and we're wanting to pin God down and get him to do what we want. It's a technique, it's a formula that we think if we're just intense enough, we can get whatever we want, and that's not it at all. Prayer is where we're learning to give ourselves completely to God. One man said this, 
Jacob held on, risking his life to get a blessing for himself. But Jesus held on at the cost of his own life to get a blessing for us. You see, the greater than Jacob has come. And that time when Jacob was alone at that place parallels that time when Jesus was alone with his father in the garden. And the author of Hebrews writes about that in chapter 5. You can read about it using the same language from the garden, same language from Genesis 32. You see, what's going on is this. If Jesus prayed in the garden as he was wrestling with God, is there another way? If Jesus prayed that and came out of that prayer at the end of that prayer saying, nevertheless, God, your will be done. If Jesus prayed that God's will will be done in his life so that we might get all the blessings of God, God, your will be done in me so that the blessings can come to us, then as we live our lives, we should be learning over and over to say to God, God, your will be done in my life for your glory. And friends, that is exactly what brings us to the table. 